Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 27th, 2019, and this is show number 755. Well, there's been a lot of talk online about how the latest operating systems from Apple have been a very bumpy road at launch as compared to previous operating systems. iOS 13 having four, or was it five updates in two or three weeks, is certainly a sign that things did not exactly go as planned for iOS. I think iPadOS 13 was even more afflicted than iOS 13, but you know what? They both had their challenges. In fact, I had uh, settings just quit on iOS 13 point whatever, whatever it is already just today. Well, the chatter from those in the beta programs was that macOS Catalina had a lot of problems too, and people gave warnings not to jump into the beta unless you really knew why you wanted to, and you could dedicate a non-mission critical device to the experiment. When Apple suddenly dumped Catalina on users on October 10th, it seemed like a reckless move to me. You see, they promised October during WWDC. They were not specific. So that meant they had 20 more days to work on it without looking bad for being late. I mean, they could have had no egg on their face, 20 more days of time to get bugs out. Anyway, I thought it was really unconscionable that they just dropped it on the uh, developers like they did at, you know, with no warning. I mentioned this on a social media platform where a friend of mine responded with, if I was a developer, I would have been working on my code all summer. Well, from what I had heard, that would not have helped the developers at all. I ran this statement by one of my favorite developers, and I got their permission to anonymously share the response to to that very statement. This developer said, if I'd heard your friend say that last month, I'd probably have burst a major artery and it would have been lashing around like a fire hose until someone got it under control. Summers are always tough. I've learned to keep June to October free, but this one was overwhelming. It was more iOS 13 and iPad OS 13 than Catalina for me. As you know, Apple bit off way more than anyone could chew, including themselves. I'm pretty sure the updates I did to my apps are the largest dot updates I have ever done. And quite a bit of that work was just to stand still. And when either iOS 13.1.1 or 13.1.2 came out, neither of which they beta tested, a few more things broke that were working in 13.1 and 13.0. It was like one of those horror movies where the monster you thought you'd stabbed in the heart roars back to life. I hope the worst is over now, but considering all the stuff they promised and failed to deliver and now plan to dribble out over the next few months, especially the iCloud stuff, who knows? Well, do you see why this is one of my favorite developers? Not prone to hyperbole at all. But this gives us a little peek behind the curtain about how hard this was for developers this year and why we as users were paying the price. Now, this discussion on social media I was having with my friend caught the attention of Ray Robertson. You may remember him as an AppleScript guru that I met when Steve and I took his class at the Command-D conference. After the show, I had he and Sal Segoyan on chit-chat, wait, I had him and Sal Segoyan on chit-chat to talk about automation. Ray asked me if he could come on chit-chat again this week to try to explain why things have gotten so bad for development on Apple operating systems from a developer's point of view. So this week's chit-chat light is that very discussion. I want you to pay attention to one really important thing he pointed out, amongst many other interesting things. He reminded us that Apple is now allowing users to be in the public beta of the operating systems. I said that earlier, but let's think about that. The development environment itself is also in beta. This means that the developer has their app in beta, 
the development environment is beta, the operating system is in beta, and just for fun, users are in there poking at things and telling them about problems and expecting things to be fixed. I cannot imagine what a nightmare that must be with so many moving parts and volatile parts to the puzzle and having users looking over your shoulder the entire time. I hope I haven't given away too much of the discussion by pointing that specific thing out to you and that you'll still listen to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice. Or of course, you can go listen over at podfeet.com. I am super excited about a new reviewer for the NoSilicast. You may know him as Dopey One in the chat room for the live show, but his real name is Ryan Winkler. I love this review because he did it in a way no one else has ever done a review before. He sent me a link to a video that he created as the review. Now, a video is not that unusual, but let me elaborate on what really makes this unique. He's reviewing a new home automation device in the audio, and while he talks, he's got a video that slows down and speeds up showing all kinds of different things. For example, in one part, he talks about the manual. In the video, he flips through the manual at about three times speed and then slows down when he gets to a circuitry-related picture, and then he speeds up again. Some of this is even essentially still photos while he's chatting about different features. It's hard to articulate why this is different and why I like it so much, so I really encourage you to follow the link in the show notes to see the video after you listen to the audio here. Today I'm going to review the iDevices wall switch. Let's start with our problem to be solved. I have one wall switch that controls all the lights in the basement, but I have multiple entrances into the basement. So the issue is, depending upon which door I use, I can turn on the lights or I have to walk all the way over to the other door to turn on the lights. Now, this might not sound like a big deal to those of you who have clean basements, but, well, my basement isn't the cleanest. So navigating my basement in the dark can be a little dangerous. So while watching the sausage being made on a Sunday afternoon recording of the NoSilicast, I asked the chat about home control devices. Enter the iDevices wall switch. So the iDevices wall switch is Apple HomeKit compliant, works with Alexa, and with Google Home, which meets all of the requirements that I had. I have an Alexa upstairs, a Google Home downstairs, and we use iDevices. When you open the box, it includes a pretty nice little manual. I was actually really impressed with the manual that has a lot of wiring instructions and had the exact wiring instructions that I needed to install the switch. At this point, I will warn you that uh, if you're not familiar with house wiring, then you want to have a professional do the installation. But in my case, over the years, I've wired and helped wired uh, basements for other folks. So I have enough experience that I was able to accomplish this task without much issue, especially with the included instructions. They were very informative and, and very helpful. Also included in the manual is a section on how to connect the iDevices product to your wireless network. The iDevices products do not require the purchase of a separate wireless hub. That was one of the requirements that I had when purchasing this product is I didn't want to have to purchase a separate wireless hub and further complicate my configuration. Final impressions. Now that we've had the iDevices light switch for a few months, we've really come to enjoy it. 
One of the features that we really like is the nightlight. The nightlight is a little light in the center of the switch that's controlled independently of the switch itself. We leave the nightlight on so that when it's nighttime, the switch is really easy to find in the dark. Both my kids and I enjoy this feature. Another feature that I like is the switch remembers the state that it was in when the power goes off. So, if the power goes off and the lights are on, when the power is restored, the lights come back on. If the power goes off when the switch is in the off position, the lights remain off when the power is restored. I like that feature. Would I purchase this product again? Yes, I would. I've actually purchased a second one to control the lights in my backyard. The lights in my backyard are controlled by a switch on the front of my house, so it makes it very convenient to control the lights in the backyard when we're in the backyard. Anyway, hope this review helps someone else. Well, thank you so much for that, Ryan. That was awesome. And uh, Sandy actually said, yeah, I'm glad to hear this because I've been trying to figure out some reason I need to get one of these switches. So I think a lot of us look for excuses to buy home automation. But, uh, you know, now that you've heard Ryan's review of the iDevices switch, I want to throw in my two cents on the same switch. Steve and I actually got two of these switches a while ago, where both of them provide the same desired functionality, but to two different sets of lights. The problem we wanted to solve was that we have external lights, carriage lights on either side of the garage, and a front entryway light. Steve wanted these to come on at dusk and turn off in the morning. For years, he's used an old-fashioned timer with an analog dial, and that worked okay, and plus they were only like, I don't know, 15 bucks. But every time the time changed or the season changed, he had to reprogram it. The iDevices switch can be set up through HomeKit to be automated for dusk and dawn. I assume you can do it with the other services as well. The other thing the iDevices switch needed to do was to allow him to actually turn off the lights. I know that sounds really dumb, but this is useful for Christmas time when we have up our holiday lights and the external lighting just doesn't help keep up with the holiday spirit. I can definitely endorse the iDevices switches as one of the least problematic and most stable of our home automation devices once we got them set up. There was a tricky part in trying to get to the HomeKit code that you need. It's hidden in this weird little pop-out, pop-up thing that's absolutely microscopic. It took Steve and me both studying it for over an hour to actually find the little code. Now, they did have the code printed on the inside of the switch too, but that part was embedded in the wall by the time you need it. Thank you again so much, Ryan, or shall I call you Dopey One? This was awesome. I hope you and your fantastic voice do more reviews. And of course, I've included an affiliate link in, in, in the show notes to the iDevices Switch on Amazon. Many years ago, Steve and I traveled to Florida with the kids on an airline that no longer exists called Transworld Airlines. You might remember it as TWA. On that trip, I made the critical error of carrying my jewelry in my checked luggage. Okay, I know, I know, I know now, right? Anyway, I'm sure you've guessed the second part of that story. When TWA gave me back my luggage, one of them had, uh, one of the employees, obviously, because they were the only people who ever touched my luggage, had taken off the cheap luggage lock, uh, lock that we had used, unzipped the bag, taken out my jewelry case, dumped out the jewelry, and put the case back in, in the bag and zipped the bag closed. That, uh, you know, we know, like I said, that was someone for TWA because there was nobody in the chain of custody other than them. In my jewelry case, there was a channel set diamond ring, two Seiko LaSalle watches, a solid gold serpentine necklace, and a few gold minor necklaces and earrings. I immediately went to TWA security, who basically told me they would cover nothing. 
I wrote to the president of TWA and they sent me a voucher for a grand total of 250 airline miles. Yes, I couldn't even fly to San Francisco. It's a one-hour flight. Anyway, I'm super sad that they went out of business. It just crushes me that they're not business anymore. So I promise there's going to be a tech angle to this story eventually. The good news part of this story is that State Farm Insurance actually covered all of our losses. I was as shocked as anyone that our homeowner's policy covered us. I did not know that would work. I got to tell you, I felt like someone from those lifestyles of the rich and famous when they sent a jeweler to our house to redesign my ring and to let me pick out the diamonds. You know, they had like the black velvet with the little diamonds on it and everything. It was amazing. The jeweler also gave me a couple of gold serpentine necklaces to try on. And I was really glad that I liked the lighter weight one that was more like the one I had before because I was real, I think I would have been really tempted that I liked the heavier one to go, yeah, yeah, it was just like this. But I got one just like the one I had before and I'm still wearing this necklace to this day. But here's where the tie-in to the tech angle comes into play. I told State Farm when I called that I have all of the receipts for the jewelry. And they said, you know what? That's actually not what's important. They said what was helpful was that if I could show them photos of me wearing the jewelry. They said anybody can fake a receipt, so the photos are critical to backing up your claim. Luckily, we were able to dig through photos and find enough to convince them that we really did own these items. After that happened, Steve went around with a video camera throughout our house while I played Vanna White pointing at things like our stereo and various bits of jewelry. Steve put the video tape in our safe deposit box and thought this would be our way of proving we own these things if we ever got burled or if our house burned down. Except, of course, the next month, you know, we bought something. Do you think we got the videotape out and added to it and went back to the bank to put the tape back? Nope. Years would go by when it wasn't ever updated. Then we thought, okay, well, the video's really hard. Let's try taking photos. But back then, it meant waiting till the SLR's film was complete and going to the store and printing them out and again going back to the bank and putting in the new photos. We hardly ever kept that up to date. Now, I wish I could remember when I found out the best solution to this problem, a fabulous piece of software called Home Inventory from Binary Formations. It's available in the Mac App Store. I've been using this app for years and years and years, and someone just recently, and I really wish I could remember who suggested I do a review of it, they said, why haven't you ever reviewed Home Inventory? You talk about it all the time. Well, the weird thing is that I did do a video tutorial for Screencast Online all about Home Inventory, but for some reason, I forgot to ever tell you about it in like, you know, a full review. The good news is that Home Inventory has advanced a great deal since the app was launched in 2005. It doesn't just solve the problem of proving you own the software or the uh, the items in it. It does ever so much more. Home Inventory at its core is a database for tracking your belongings, and we'll get into the newer enhancements after we talk about the basics. Let's start by explaining how to add the items to Home Inventory. A simple plus button at the bottom of the center items column starts by asking you a few questions. Questions, sorry. You name the item, add an error if it's that kind of item, and then provide the make, model, and serial number as appropriate. Home inventory supports both tags and categories, so go wild if you like, uh, you know, even more organization. You can put your items in a location if you like, but most of the things I care about don't move around uh, very much, so I don't tend to use that field. You can assign a collection as well. I fooled around a little bit with this, making a collection for my Star Trek DVDs, but to be honest, I haven't really used that much either. You can identify the condition of the item as well. 
I tend to put stuff in home inventory when brand new, so I haven't used that field either. Maybe if you have like antiques or something, I don't know. So you tell it from whom you purchased the item, the purchase date, the price, and the value if that's different. So far, this is all pretty boring and dry, but if you think about your Apple Watch, most of those questions are pretty good to have written down somewhere. It's nice to have all that information. Once you've entered the text-based details, it gets more interesting. Across the top, you'll see a series of tabs, and the second one says Photos. This is where we take a photo of us with the new item, so I'll never have to go digging again if an insurance need should arise. Simply drag and drop photos onto this tab and you're good to go. You don't have to make them cute, just make them recognizable, right? Well, the next tab is for receipts. When I receive a receipt for an item, I simply print a PDF and I drag it onto this tab. I make sure to print out my Apple Care receipts as well. Speaking of Apple Care, there's a button at the bottom of the main info window to enter warranty information. If you buy an extended warranty or have info on the regular warranty of an item, this is a great place to enter the information. Sometimes you might just want to add a note about an item, so there's a tab for that as well. You can also attach files that aren't photos or receipts in yet another tab. If all you did with home inventory was what I described so far, I think home inventory is worth the $40 from the Mac App Store or from the website at binaryformations.com. But guess what? It is available with your SetApp subscription. That's absolutely bananas, in my opinion, that you can get this app within SetApp. Setups get more and more valuable every day. So for a one-off addition to an existing inventory like I bought a new watch, the path I just described to, to, to enter new items is pretty much what I do. But what if you're starting from scratch? That would be a very tedious process. Home inventory includes many ways to enter photos and scan receipts. For a very long time, they've had an iOS app called Remote Entry. It's kind of interesting how this works. On your Mac, you open up the inventory menu and you select Remote Entry. With your iOS device on the same network, open remote entry and trot around the house snapping photos of your precious items. When you take the photo, you'll be prompted to name the item. They could ask you a plethora of questions, but instead they leave that to do when you get back to the Mac, so you're not trying to type on that little screen. You can start adding items by taking pictures and starting in a specific location, category, collection, or tag. That'll save you a step if you're into that higher level of organization. One option in taking photos is to scan a barcode. They highly recommend against using this feature for the same reasons my insurance company said the receipts were not as important as pictures of us with our items. A barcode can be scanned in from a store, so it's not really going to help you for insurance purposes. The remote entry app is free, by the way, but they have a tip jar there with the most you can possibly give them set at $2.99. Now, I paid these guys 40 bucks for home inventory about 100 years ago, and I haven't paid them a dime since, so I went full Thurston Howell III and shelled out the entire three bucks for the tip jar. Now, if you don't want to use a separate app, you can use Apple's continuity camera function. In theory, if macOS and iOS don't have their panties in a bunch, you can select home inventory to add a new photo, and one of the options will be to take a photo with your iOS device. My devices kind of seem to come and go on my ability to use continuity camera. When it works, it's amazing. It doesn't work all the time. As I was working on this review, continuity camera wasn't working in any application, including those by Apple like Notes. And yes, I'm on Mojave on the Mac. And yes, I'm on iOS 13 on the phone. And yes, they're on the same network. And yes, I have Bluetooth on for both devices. But you know what? If the Apple utility works for you, home inventory supports it, which is great. 
I said up front that home inventory did more than just keep an inventory of your stuff. Recently, by recently, I mean like in the last five years, so recent for me, they added a section to add insurance policies. We've uploaded all four of our insurance policies because we're way overinsured, and we uploaded the deed to our house for safekeeping. It's as easy as dragging a PDF to the window and renaming it. I actually have to give a little shout out to Dorothy. She said, so have you scanned in your, uh, you know, those things like your insurance policies and your the deed your house into any place so you can ever get to it later if something goes wrong? And I thought, nope, those things are going to just burn up along with the house. So anyway, shout out to Dorothy. If you want more value out of home inventory when it comes to the reporting, I'll tell you uh, that about in a minute. You can add specific coverages. For example, you can add details about personal property coverage and structured coverage where you enter how much coverage you have and the cost of your deductible. If you've been good about using categories and tags and locations on your item entry, unlike me, then you are going to love the report section. You can run six different kinds of reports. There's a detailed item report, which will show you absolutely every little kind of detail you enjoyed entering. The item list report just gives you the item name, serial number, and value or price. The summary report gives you a summary broken down by category, collection, or location. So it'll show you that you've got five items in electronics in the master bedroom with a total value of $37.46. Seriously, that's what mine says because I've been so lazy. Anyway, they've got a coverage analysis report. This is the one I mentioned that you get as much out of as you put into. If you put in the line items from your policies in detail into home inventory, then the coverage analysis report will sum it up nicely for you. But if you just kind of dump a PDF of your policy in there, this report's not going to tell you anything. Can you tell which one I did? Here's a really interesting one. There's one now called moving list. If I ever move again before I'm dead, I will definitely use this report to make sure everything valuable ends up at the other end. I think I'll need to triage stuff out of home inventory, though. It's got everything I've ever owned in it right now. Finally, they've got a photo contact sheet. I'm not exactly sure what this report is for, but if you want to see a photo of all the items you have in a really nice format together, you go, girl. Once I decided I was going to keep my Apple Watch Series 5 after all, I had Steve take a photo of me wearing the watch and holding the box. Then I had to dig through my email to find the receipts from Apple. I printed them to PDF, dragged the PDFs into home inventory, and then deleted the PDFs. But then I discovered another new feature of home inventory. It's probably been there for years, but I never noticed it. There's a tab at the top called simply Inbox. There's a link in the Inbox tab explaining that if you install their print plugin, under the PDF option in any standard print dialog box, you will now see the option to send that, that, that thing you're printing to PDF directly to home inventory without saving the PDF in between. Now, I was worried about a plugin with all of Apple security measures around plugins to Safari that, that maybe this wouldn't work. But I downloaded the plugin anyway, and to my delight, it's simply an automator workflow with a bash script inside that you can read for yourself. How fun is that? Anyway, I ran the plugin, and now I can send a home inventory directly from mail or from any other app. I sent an email to home inventory using the plugin, and now the inbox tab has a giant glaring red one on it, so I can't possibly forget that I have an action item waiting. When selecting the email in the inbox, I'm invited to add a name, error, make, model, etc., just as though I was adding any other new item. In general, I like to start with a photo and then add the receipt. There's a way to do that, but it's not from within Inbox. Instead, you create your item first, 
add the photos and info about it. And then in the bottom left, there's an add button. And one of the options is to add receipt from inbox. I was super happy when I discovered that option. Okay, here's something funny. That's where the take photo option is for continuity camera. And now it's working for me again. Again, I do not blame home inventory for disappearing as an option and reappearing. It's Apple's operating systems that get confused on communication with one another. Don't even get me started on AirDrop, by the way. As you create your inventory, you may think some of this data is pretty sensitive. Your inventory can be protected by a password, and in settings, you can even enable Touch ID to unlock your inventory. Another enhancement they've made to home inventory is the ability to add information about your home itself. Now, it's not necessarily in a discoverable place in the app for me, and yet once you know where it is, it does make perfect sense. In the upper left of the app, there's an icon of a little house, and it's actually a whole interface element, not just a home button, you know, like, well, like a home button. Anyway, you can add a photo of your home and add some statistics about it. You can put in the address, square footage, lot size, year built, what you paid for it, and when. It's not like you couldn't put that information somewhere else, but why not in home inventory? Now, how good are you at remembering to flush your water heater? I mocked Steve mercilessly with a Facebook post when I announced that coming that the next coming Friday was shown on my calendar as annual flush the water heater day. Anyway, I'm really glad he does things like this, but it was kind of a funny place to have it. Well, home inventory is a very logical place to put in a reminder of exciting tasks like flushing the water heater, changing the air filters, and more. On the home tab, you can add a maintenance task, give it a date, and then you can choose whether to show it on your calendar or in your reminders list and add a repeat so you never forget to do it. Now, with fun tools out there like Zillow, you can obsessively watch your home values go up and down. In home inventory, you can record this kind of obsessive tracking by adding assessments for land and structure value. It's probably actually intended for the assessed value by the state or country or for your property taxes. I like the the Zillow stuff too. The Home Deb also has some nifty charts. You can see a pie chart of the value of your items by category. That kind of makes me really want to go through and start categorizing things. You can also see a pie chart of what's under warranty, not under warranty, and what has coverage expired or expiring soon. Sadly, you can't select the soon-to-be-expiring items from this window to see, like, okay, which two items are those that I have that are soon-to-be-expiring. My favorite chart on this page is the value of items by month. I have charts going back to May 2011, and for some inexplicable reason, I have a spike in the spring and fall every year. Well, if you're going to spend time putting in all this data into home inventory, then you better have a backup. They've got you covered in a couple of ways. In settings, you can choose to backup to a local folder on your Mac's drive, or you can backup to Dropbox. The cool thing about a Dropbox backup is you can get another free iOS app from Binary Formations called Mobile Backup and it reads the data from Dropbox and imports it automatically. That way you always have with you a backup of all the data from your home inventory. So if you're not the kind of person who likes to organize their lives and keep track of things and have data available at their fingertips, you may not have found my description of home inventory compelling. But I bet even if you're not naturally good at it, you've heard something here that helps you realize that home inventory can help you become better at tracking expensive items and protecting yourself in case of a catastrophe like a fire, flood, or earthquake, or an airline stealing your jewelry. Home inventory takes an uninteresting task and makes it more enjoyable and easier to keep good records, which is a good thing. Check it out at binaryformations.com or the Mac App Store or in Setup. 
So you guys remember when I was talking about the iDevices switch that Ryan did that awesome uh, review about, and I said that I included an Amazon affiliate link? Well, it turns out that about half of the funding for how I pay for creating the podcast is from those Amazon affiliate links. They work really, really well. All you got to do is click on them and then buy stuff. So you don't even have to buy what we're talking about. So Ryan tells you about the iDevices switch. You go in there and you decide you need some, uh, I don't know, Drano or something from Amazon. When you buy something within that same session, a small percentage can go to help the show. So, uh, you know, buy anything you want on Amazon going through one of those links and it does help the show. And it makes a massive difference in whether this costs me money to do the show or whether it's like a teeny tiny bit profitable. I do it for the love of the show, but it's way more fun to know that it's not costing me money to create the NoSillaCast and Chit Chat Across the Pond and Programming by Stealth. So if you can help a girl out, click on those links. If you've been playing along for a while, you'll remember that I was super sad when the MyScript Stylus folks decided to stop supporting my beloved MyScript Stylus third-party keyboard for the iPad. This magical keyboard allowed you to use Apple Pencil to write by hand and executed real-time optical character recognition, so everything you scribbled turned into beautiful typed text. Now, like a lot of people, I generally like typing much better than writing by hand, but there was something exceedingly pleasing about handwriting scribbled notes when I was in a lean-back iPad environment, like having my morning coffee in bed. Tried to get over it, and the superb Apple keyboard for the newer iPads Pro has definitely helped me in that transition. But I've still been unhappy with typing on iPad Mini. The on-screen keyboard is cramped, and it's hard to hold this small iPad in a convenient way to use the keyboard. In August, I reviewed two absolutely dreadful physical keyboards for iPad Mini, so that didn't solve my problem. But now with iPad OS 13, I may have found a solution. If you're using, you're using an iPhone on iOS 13, you probably know that you can use new slide gestures to type on iPhone. You may need to enable it. It's under Settings, General, Keyboards, Slide to Type. You won't see any change to the keyboard, but you can now slide your finger around and get close to the right characters and the brains of the iPhone figure out what you meant to type. I'm really enjoying it on iPhone, especially when trying to type while being driven down a bumpy road. With normal typing, my finger would often double tap accidentally, or by the time my finger got to the phone, it had moved and I'd hit the wrong letter. I'm not sure I'm faster yet with swiping around, but it's more pleasing to me. By the way, I do want to acknowledge Android's had this option for ages. You could get third-party keyboards that gave you swipe typing on the iPhone, but that's not the same as having the capability on the native keyboard. I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page before I explain how the slide keyboard may have made me happier with typing on iPad Mini. As soon as I put iPad OS on the Mini, I tried swiping on the keyboard, but it did not work. I jumped into Settings, General, Keyboards, and I noticed that the terminology for slide typing was slightly different. Instead of saying slide to type like it does on the iPhone, it says slide on floating keyboard to type. This is a new feature of iPadOS 13. In iOS 12 on iPad, they made it where you could split the keyboard so half was on the left and half was on the right. That sounds like it would make typing easier because you could hold the iPad with two hands and the left thumb would type the left letters and the right thumb the right letters, but for some reason it wasn't easy at all. I don't know, maybe some people got the hang of it, but I found I had to look left, look right, look back to left, and it was more cognitive load to try to type than it was useful. 
Now, they still have that split keyboard in iPad OS 13 on the mini and smaller iPads like the 9.7 and whatever the non-iPads Pro are. But they, like I said, uh, but they don't have that split keyboard on the iPads Pro. In any case, I think the floating keyboard is much more useful. If you pinch with two fingers on the big keyboard, it literally shrinks up and now you can drag it around on screen by the handle at the bottom. And it looks just like the iPhone keyboard. Once you make it floating, as long as you have that uh, the toggle turned on in settings, you can now slide with one finger on the floating keyboard to type, just like you can on the iPhone. I definitely like this better than trying to use the full-sized, and I'm using that in, in air quotes, because uh, it's still cramped on-screen keyboard to type on the iPad mini. But I found something even more pleasing. Remember I bought the Logitech Crayon, which is now only 50 bucks on Amazon. Anyway, remember I bought that to use with iPad mini? Well, Crayon plus slide keyboard is fabulous together. I can't really explain it, but it feels like the joy I used to have with MyScript Stylus. It's smooth and precise and very happy making. I, I was I was talking to Sandy about it, and the only thing we can figure is that our fingers are just sometimes just enough sticky that they sort of stick on screen. I mean, maybe you have super dry fingers and it doesn't happen to you, but it makes it harder to slide with that than it does with pencil. Or in this case, the $50 Logitech crayon. By the way, if you search for slide to type in Apple's documentation, you will not find it. It's not in the support documentation anywhere. I even downloaded the iBook written by Apple and entitled iPad User Guide for iPad OS 13.1, and I searched for slide to type and I could not find it. Finally, I searched for keyboard and found that in their documentation, they call this feature Quick Path. That's super helpful, Apple. Thanks for naming it two different things so you can't find any documentation on it. Anyway, try to remember Quick Path means slide to type. In any case, I may be the only person who will enjoy using a crayon to slide around on a tiny floating keyboard on iPad mini, but it makes me happy. By the way, did you know there's an Amazon affiliate link in that article to the Logitech Crayon? Now only $50 on Amazon. All right, all right, Frank. I'll stop with the midterm pledge break now. While I was at MacTech, I had the opportunity to interview two vendors, one of whom was Kurt Schmucker from Parallels. We talked about the newest version of the Parallels desktop, but also one of my favorite menu bar apps, Parallels Toolbox. Let's hear that interview now. One of my hobbies is to walk up to a product manager and tell him how much I like the product that he's not the product manager of. And I did that this morning to Kurt Schmucker from Parallels. How are you doing today, Kurt? I'm doing fine. So I walked up to Kurt and said, man, I really love Parallels Toolbox. And he's the product manager for Parallels Desktop. But it's okay if I I gush about Parallels Toolbox too, right? Absolutely correct. Parallels Toolbox is bundled with Parallels Desktop. So anybody who gets Parallels Desktop gets Parallels Toolbox for the same subscription period. Oh, I did not realize that. That's fantastic. If you don't need Parallels Desktop, that's okay. You can still buy Parallels Toolbox as a separate product. Right, right. So I've done a review of the initial set of products. And then about a year later, I went back and said, wait a minute, there's like 10 new things in here. And that's why I really believe in the subscription model for this particular tool. I think it works really, really well. I agree with you. When we first came out with Parallels Toolbox, we had about 20 tools. And now we have over 40 in Parallels Toolbox for for Mac. We also added along the way Parallels Toolbox for Windows. It has fewer tools because some aren't needed for Windows and just because its product got started later. Oh, okay. That's good to know that it's available for Windows as well. Wait, could you run Parallels Toolbox inside Parallels Desktop for Windows? Yes. 
So in fact, the license you get when you get Parallels Desktop allows you to install on your Mac and in any Windows VM you have. So if you have five Windows VMs, you can install in all five. I think you switched it and said Parallels Desktop. You meant Parallels Toolbox, right? So if you have Parallels Desktop, the license for Parallels Toolbox allows you to install on your Mac and in any Windows VM you have. Okay. Even if you have several of them, you can still install all those. And you even told me about a product inside Parallels Toolbox that I didn't realize it had. You said it's got a clipboard manager? Clipboard history. So I, I think the most uh, looks, looked at tool for the new edition of Parallels Toolbox is p- clipboard history. How many times I put something on the clipboard and then got distracted for a moment, copied something else, say, oh, I've lost that thing. I have to go back and get it again. Clipboard history can record all the things you put on that clipboard for as long as a month if you want it. You know, I've just become a convert to the whole concept of looking at clipboard history managers, and that's that's fantastic. But you are the product manager for for uh, Parallels Desktop, and what's new in 15? The big news in Parallels Desktop 15, which came out in August, is we've moved completely to metal for all our graphics work. So any Windows application that does a lot of graphics, like a CAD CAM app, an architectural app, or a game, gets a big speed boost in Parallels Desktop 15. Oh, that's fantastic. So do a lot of apps use uh, the graphics engine that maybe we don't think about? Absolutely. So we were, I was actually very surprised when I installed Office and I launched Word. Word launches about 80% faster now in Parallels Desktop 15. I suspect because they initialize a lot of graphics thing when they launch, but the launch speed is like really impressive now. That's, uh, that's impressive about you guys, depressive about Microsoft that, that they're so heavily dependent on graphics. It's, that's, that's pretty funny. Well, Word still uses lots of graphics and, uh, and not as much as PowerPoint, for example, but Word, you put a lot of graphics in Word documents. I guess so, but it's like they're pictures. It's not like it's rendering video or something, right? Uh, certainly true. Dynamic graphics don't make a whole lot of sense in Word. I agree with that 100%. Let's hope not anyway. So uh, what else is new in, in Parallels Desktop 15? So we also added support for low-power Bluetooth. We've had Bluetooth devices in Parallels Desktop for many years, but there are some, there's a category of devices called low-power devices, and we added support for that in Parallels Desktop. We also added support for things in Catalina, like Sidecar. So if you use Sidecar, we have special support for Sidecar inside the VM, and it's really pretty cool. Okay, that's making my head start to bend. So I've got a I've got a Mac operating system with Parallels Desktop on that, and inside there I've got Windows or Linux. Now, how does Sidecar fit in? So if you have a Sidecar set up, so you have an iPad near your Mac, when you go when you go to the full screen button on Parallels Desktop window, one of the options will be move Windows to side to the iPad, and then now your Windows installation goes there, goes full screen on the iPad, and we of course still support the the uh, toolbar. Uh, on the iPad even, and we have other things that make it just easier to use. And remember, Sidecar doesn't require a wired connection. You can be as far away as 30, 40 feet and still use Bluetooth uh, for... Um, uh, it's probably a combination of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, I would imagine. Yes, I probably so. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Apple never tells you, but they, they usually do that. Right? Well, you definitely don't need a wire. So that's really great. And I've been able to use that in, in Windows, you know. Windows 10 has a uh, touch... Uh, touch a, interface? A, a touch interface mode. 
If you click that on, you can then use the Apple Pencil to do things in Windows. It's really cool. Where's, we where's my new- head, top of my head blown off emoji when I need it? Wow, that's crazy. Even uh, We even support the Apple Pencil 2 extra features like double tap on the pencil, things like this are all supported in Parallels Desktop. That is crazy. Now, uh, could you do these sidecar features if you're running Linux inside Parallels Desktop as well? I believe so. I haven't personally done it, so I'm not going to promise, but I think it's true. Okay, because that's my main use for Parallels Desktop is to run a Linux so, VM. You might not get all the support for the Apple Pencil inside Linux, but it definitely will get the ability to move the window there, have it resized, and so on. And same if you use Mac VMs. We're seeing a kind of resurgence in interest in Mac VMs now because Catalina removes support for 32-bit apps. So if you have an old app, make a VM of Mojave or Al Capitan, whatever you're running, before you move to Catalina, and then you'll you'll be golden. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. And I think Apple officially allows you to do that. Now, they were kind of snotty about it for a while, and now they're... They have for some time now. So yeah. since, since Snow Leopard server, you're allowed to move a Mac VM, Mac, Mac OS into a VM. Before that, you can't. And Yeah, that was server, but the, the regular OS, that was more recent well, than well, from, Snow Well, from Snow Leopard server forward, all the Mac, VM, Mac OSs are allowed to be virtualized. I got you. I you want to go you. back to Jaguar or something, you're out of luck. <laughs> Well, my Jaguar app doesn't run anymore. I've got this this SCSI driver I need, right? Uh, that's exactly right. We we do get people who ask questions like that. So I was quite surprised when I saw on the various forums that people were upset that Mac Office 2011 didn't work in Catalina. Uh, guys, that's like nine years ago. Like, you can't get the program here. You can't expect support forever. See, that's the hard part about you, Job, is you probably have to be nice to those people anyway. Yeah, uh, they're valid concerns. And it, you know, I tell people, hey, move to Office 365. It's $100 a year for five installs. That's my Mac at work, my Mac at home, my iPad, my phone, and I still got one left over. Actually, uh, I believe, and don't quote me on this, but I believe the five computers is separate from the iOS devices. I'm pretty sure you can do five computers and the iOS devices are beyond that. I don't think so. Okay, I'm probably lying. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll pay persistence rocks after the could interview. Could have changed yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not very good at this stuff, but I was pretty Micro- sure that was true. Microsoft, I worked at Microsoft for 10 years. Like, Microsoft licensing is the most complicated technical topic in the entire company, without doubt. Oh, I bet. I bet. Um, I personally found Office 2011 faster than Office 365, though. I find it to be kind of a dog, so I'm, I'm not, a, not a huge fan. Interesting. I, I was the, the group program manager for Office 2011, so I know it very well, and I still have it on my, on my Mac. But Office 2016 is pretty good, and they've added lots of features, and it's a good thing to move to. Well, I wish I, you still worked there, Kurt, because I would give you my list of things that irritate the daylights out of me in Office 20, uh, 365. One of the things I added to Mac Office was a font collection of all Microsoft-compatible fonts. So you'd know when you made a document that would, would display correctly in Windows. They took that out. I'm uh, so bummed. Uh, well, we've ended off, off off topic, but it's a lot of fun talking to you, Kurt. So if people want to check out Parallels Desktop and Parallels uh, Toolbox, where would they go? Go to our website. You get a 15-day trial. When you install Parallels Desktop on a Mac for the first time, a dialog comes up and says, I notice you don't have Windows. Shall I download and install it for you? And so for that 15 days, you've got both Parallels Desktop and Windows, no charge. Check it out. Make sure it works for the apps you want. If you want it, then buy Parallels Desktop, buy Windows, and you're you're golden. doesn't work for your app, which is unusual. But if it doesn't, 
You haven't wasted any money. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, what is your website? Uh, Parallels.com. And you'll, our front page, of course, has our flagship product, Parallels Desktop, at the top of the page. Very good. And you only have to spell Parallels correctly, which is two L's in the middle, one L at the end. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you. Well, during this conversation, Kurt mentioned that with an Office 365 subscription, you can share it with five devices and included Macs, PCs, and mobile devices. I argued with him and I said, I didn't think the mobile devices counted against that five devices. Luckily, in my argument, I also said I was probably lying. I did some research and the licensing has changed since I last checked, and I think it's actually better than what either one of us said. It is five devices, including mobile, as Kurt said, But it turns out you can share that license with four other family members and each member gets five devices now. I know it used to be a total of five for a shared Office 365 membership. So I was really excited that each member gets five devices. You also get uh, OneDrive and a bunch of other things. If you'd like to read the details of the licensing, I've included a link to the Microsoft Office support document all about licensing. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. Oh my gosh, I still have an outstanding dumb question, I think. Oh shoot, I got to get to that. Anyway, if you want to send yours in, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You've got podfeet.com slash Patreon if you want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast. If you want to join our Facebook group, go to podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to get in there on Slack and talk about programming and all kinds of geeky stuff with uh, with Bart and the other people that hate Facebook? Join Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and watch the sausage get made with the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.